amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. everybody um you know i have to do the parental thing and i'm um, the parental unit so the parent unit we had a lot of traffic so i apologize to all our uh, uh listeners um but i'm doing very well well that's great and you know that we have great weather here today you know jay i'm gonna i'm going to rub this in for a while because we have amazing amazing weather today and we do have our guests holding so we're going to ask alisa kamahort page just to be with us for a little bit because You've got some good stuff for us today to start out with just a few sound bites, and then we'll go right into our guest. Jay, would you share with our audience about the latest sound bites? 
my internet is, is is not functioning right now. I'm having some technical problems. Um, <laughs> I was wondering if that's, that that was and all my um my um stuff is not coming through. So um, bear with me and let me see what I can get to go on because I'm having well, what, um technical. Well, why don't we start? So. Why don't we start out with one thing? I want to know what you think about Kanye's speech the other night of running for president at the VMAs. Got to get your feedback on this, and then we'll have Alisa Camerhart come right on on. Oh, wow. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, I will not be voting for him in 2020. I'm just letting everybody know now. I'm not <laughs> putting my hand up to that. I thought that was interesting, you know, because with this new hip-hop generation, Gail, there's you know, like 40 million kids and teenagers, and all these people will be of voting age in five years. Um, it's a scary thing, you know. Um, but this is the world we live in. Um, <laughs> I, I just I thought that was a shock. It was a shock to me that he would say that and um, put that out there on MTV. What a platform to say that on. Um, I wonder what the world would be like. I wonder will he have grown up and matured at that time. Um, I don't know if uh, if uh, a rapper or a rap producer, and he's very talented. Don't get me wrong. I, I really think he's talented. I don't, I'm not saying, or so we're not slamming Kanye West on our show. But um, I think um, leaders have to be chosen by the people. I think it's the people's choice. I think one individual can't really you can say you're running and you can do all that, but it's going to be the people's choice. So depending on where these teenagers and all these voters that will be old enough to vote and where the, and where the uh, middle age and the uh, people will be at that time, that will determine if he could even run. And people don't understand. It costs millions and millions and millions of dollars to run for president. I don't, even think, I don't think Kanye West even understands. He doesn't have enough money. Even Donald Trump is going to have to fork over a half a billion dollars. So, it, you know, it's not as easy. It's easy to say, oh, I'm running for president. But when, when the factors come in and you decide and you, you make that decision, you're going to have a, have a lot of uh, uh, money to fork over. I don't think he really gets it. And uh, I don't think he would make the best presidential at this time. This Kanye West right here that we see, I don't think this Kanye – will be the best choice uh, for president at that time. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, my only, my my opinion is, you know, I was quite surprised um, that he would say that. But specifically, and then, you know, in three minutes we're going to have to go to Elisa because she's been waiting a while. Um, sorry, Elisa. One of the things that I was really taken back by, but I I did applaud him, was the fact that he spoke about, the art and the importance of art and not doing it just for the money, but for the passion of what you, you love and what you enjoy. What are your thoughts about that and both of us being on the business side of the music industry itself as well? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a, the, the music is definitely from the heart and the soul, and it, it comes from the inner, the inner self of us. So, I think you know when you when you're on that high and you you see the the power of it, which you see all these people. He's not realizing that all these people are loving him because of his music, not because of what his political beliefs are. People, you know, people vote because of their families. What K 
can our presidential person do for our families and our homes and our country? Not because, oh, I like your beat, or I like the way you played the guitar yesterday. <laughs> it was the wrong concept, and um, music is from the heart. So people, you know, will vote from the heart, but I think it's a little different when you start affecting people's uh, electric light bills, telephone bills, jobs, um, <laughs> mortgages. Uh, it's from the heart. And it's good that he says that he wants to help the country. Um, but we, as citizens of this country, we need to stand up as a village and we need to help ourselves. You know, you can appoint, uh, you can appoint somebody or we can take it, take back the country ourselves and all get together and become one voice. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is becoming one voice. The bottom line of the whole world is becoming one voice. Once we establish that, that's all really that matters. Because one person well, I, cannot do it alone. Well, I agree. One one person cannot um, do it. And I think that sometimes he uses the awards as a platform for his agenda. That's the only thing exactly. that bothers me. And I think even Taylor Swift was a little bit surprised herself. But Jay will have more news to go on to later and talk with our music industry veteran about that at that time. Right now I'd like to bring on Miss Elisa Camahort. I have been dying to have her on the show. Elisa, how are you? I'm great, Gail. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Oh, no, it is absolute pleasure for us to have you today. Please meet our co-host, Mr. Jay Logan, who's out in San Francisco, Oakland area. Jay, this is Elisa Camahort. Hey, nice Hi, to Elisa. meet you. Nice to meet you, Hi. too. Well, Elisa, as you know, we have been excited to have you on, and we have some really great questions for you. And really, you know, about okay. your journey, you know, your journey, you know, and how you, I mean, you know, Blocker has been hugely successful. And and though we want to know about Blocker, we're really interested in Lisa and her thoughts and her journey so that other young people can experience, you know, that they they too can create their passions as well. So, you know, if it's okay with you, we would like to go right into the show. And we just ask you sure. that you tailor your answers to the questions because we don't want to let all the goodies out too quickly, too fast. Is that okay with you? Okay. Okay. So, Elisa, blog her, blog her. She knows media. Where do we start? Did you ever think you would have co-found such a hugely successful online platform for women? And tell us how you got started in such an online blogging platform that has done so well. Uh, well, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, I think that one of the key things is that, no, I never – my goal was not to be an entrepreneur. Um, I like my real career role model was my mom, who was your very prototypical second wave feminist who went to work um, when I was a kid for the first time. She'd gotten married straight out of college, moved all the way across the country to California, and had three kids by the time she was 27. And then when I was about 10 or 11, she decided to go to work and. Uh, she found her calling and became a real workaholic, and she worked until she was, like, 70. And, um, and she just climbed the corporate ladder. She was the first female vice president at a, a you know, major company that she worked for, things like that. So 
when I, I originally had gone to school in the arts and had moved to New York and was like a starving artist. And when, when I realized that um, I missed California and I missed um, not being poor, I <laughs> came back home and I really didn't know <laughs> what I was going to do. Um, and so I took a job with a friend of the family in the commodities industry of all things and stayed in that industry for about seven years. And then I was like, oh, hey, I'm in Silicon Valley, and this tech thing seems to be really taken off. So I thought, let me see if I have aptitude to do that. And I, again, through, a, through my network, found an entry-level job at a tech company and stayed in that industry. But my goal was always to do what my mom did, climb that corporate ladder and, you know, get promoted. And I, and I did that for a while. And then I sort of encountered um, – Obstacles that, that all people face when they're trying to operate within a, you know, hierarchical corporate structure. But I think perhaps, you know, my gender definitely added some flavor to those obstacles. And um, during the bust, the dot-com bust, I walked away from a good job. I was completely disillusioned and burnt out. And, and I realized I didn't want to go back and do the same thing. And, I, and, and again, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And then, and then it was more a matter of um, jumping on opportunities and ideas and seeing what worked and what didn't. And I did a bunch of different things until I met my co-founders of BlogHer, Lisa Stone and, and Jory Desjardins. And we were not friends or colleagues. We were introduced. I met Lisa through a mutual friend. I met Jory sitting next to her at a conference. And I have to say, when we did the first BlogHer conference, because that is the way we started, it was, we were not a company. We were just three bloggers who said, let's do this thing. Um, and we kind of used our credit cards to reserve the space, and we threw it out there to the community. And it was only after that first conference, after we'd had this trial by fire of the three of us working for 120 days to produce this sold-out conference, that we were like, oh, there's, there's, there's more – in a project here there's there's actually an opportunity in a company and that's when we got serious about it but um to me it's more about uh figuring that you should take take risks make a leap um see what happens play it out uh and if, if things don't work out you can always try something else and it's, it's sort of that sense of being open i think that created something i never planned for or expected Wow. Wow. Well, Alicia, I wanted to know, where did your interest for online blogging start? Uh, like, when did it first start? Oh, so when I left my job, I just started blogging for fun. Um, I had gotten this blog client application through my Mac.com membership from Apple, and I just started blogging for fun, and I would just write. I mean, I discovered I really liked writing, and I had a lot of opinions. So <laughs> I had a personal blog, which was really just book reviews, movie reviews, restaurant reviews. And um, I had what I called my peanut butter chocolate moment about blogging, though, because I wrote a restaurant review. You know, if you work out here in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of Greek deli, Greek and Mediterranean delis that are around um, a lot of the big office buildings where you go and you get like falafel and stuff like that. And most of them are pretty much greasy spoons. But I went to this one restaurant that was really nice and, and still totally economical, but, but everything was really fresh and good. So I wrote a review of it and I sent it 
to two of my friends at the former companies that I'd worked at that was nearby there. And the next time I went to the restaurant, like 10 days later, there was like a group of 12 or 15 people from that company there, none of whom were my two friends that I had sent the review to. So I was like, hey, guys, what are you all doing here? And that review had been passed around the company, and it had quickly become their new lunch place. And I, I just had this, what you know, my, my dated 70s reference to peanut butter chocolate moment, which is that I realized blogging was this amazing communications tool that could be used for marketing purposes uh, because it, it brought with it a sense of authenticity and more social, more weight than if you just tell someone in passing verbally. Now you have a place on the web where you've put it out there, what your opinion is. Uh, this was back in 2003, so it was pretty early. Uh, and, and so that's how I started out doing it just because I loved it. And then I figured out that there was more you could do with it and it could be leveraged as a communications tool in a lot of different ways, not just, you know, the way I happened to at that point. But, you know, I started a consultancy and started helping, uh, I actually started with arts organizations, theaters, um, creating blogs and online marketing that would help bring them audience in between the shows that they did so they didn't have to rebuild from scratch every time a show closed and a new one was going to open. Wow. Okay, so, wow. Okay, that sounds really cool. Um, You know, (laughs) one of the things I would like to know is, Alisa, you believe in women's uh, leadership, I know. Even your mom, you know, the background that you shared with your mom. Can you tell us about that? What is your thoughts on women's leadership? Well, it's interesting because I think there's room for a lot of um, difference of opinion even with between women leaders. So Jory, my co-founder, and I always joke that we actually have a very different perspective on women's leadership, which I think strengthened blog her and made us more accessible to more kinds of women. So I am not much of a gender determinist, and I, uh, meaning that I don't think that there – I don't like – saying that there's a women's style of leadership or a men's style of leadership. I don't like certain things being ascribed to as masculine traits or feminine traits. And I think that's because, you know, I often tell this story and my poor, my poor stepsister must not, I don't know if she's ever heard me tell this story. She probably wouldn't like it. We were driving in a car and she's a recruiter, corporate recruiter, tech recruiter. And this was back when I was still in corporate and we were driving in the car, I remember, and I told her some story about managing my staff or some issue. And she said to me, oh, Elisa, that's because you manage like a man. And I go, well, what, is, what does that mean? And she said, well, you know, you're, you're super um, forthright and you can make a decision and you're very direct and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and those are good qualities for a manager to have, I, I take it. And she goes, oh, yeah. I said, so you're a corporate recruiter who helps get people management jobs in tech, and you just identified that you think good management qualities are typical and, and normal for a man, but, but not for women, and, and you help get people jobs. And, and she, um, she just looked at me like, whoa, you know, mind blown. Um, but I always tell that story because I, I think that those are character traits and personality traits, but I don't think they have anything to do with my gender. And so, But if you ask Jory, she has a very different perspective. She sees a lot, you know, she really believes that there are different natural modes of operating and behaving um, and, that, and that acknowledging those and valuing those um, would make it easier for, for women to become leaders and, and advance. 
I do agree that valuing and acknowledging those different traits is great, but I think that would be great for men and women because right now men who man, women who manage like people think is masculine um, have certain, you know, preconceptions about them. And then men who there are sensitive, awesome male leaders, and I've worked for some, I've had mentors for some, and I think it's a barrier for them if other people look at them and think that they are, you know, managing like a woman, you know. Um, so I think that uh, there's there's room and value for, for all those traits. And, and so I, I, I might be a little, I might be a little different than a lot of folks who are sort of working on women's leadership because uh, I'm all about, you know, it's, it's about systemic and structural issues. And if we address them, it would make more room for everybody on the whole spectrum of skills and leadership and behavior. You know, um, Jay, before you ask your question, I just have a curious question here. You know, I hear you mm-hmm. say that you guys have a very different way of working together, you know, like very thought process, different thought processes. You know, how does that work, you know, all three of you working together? You know, because a lot of our entrepreneurs out here would like to know that when you have three, you know, people who have different thought processes or approaches, how do you work together around that? Well, there's, there's a few things, I think, that I always say uh, to look for in partners, and a lot of mm-hmm. it is about how you work together. So there's three of us, and I think three is a great number because um, there's always a majority. You know, there's always, if you can't convince all three, you've at least got two versus one, right? And one of my, one of my perspectives is that if I think Lisa and Jory are two of the smartest people I've ever met and I have complete and total respect for them, which I do, and I can't convince them that I'm right, at least one of them, if not both of them, then I have to take a step back and say, wow, maybe I'm not right, you know. So I I think that you have to have that level of respect for your partner's intelligence, acuity, analysis, you know, that they are bringing something to the table that you respect so much that it matters to you if you cannot bring them over to your perspective. And it makes you second-guess yourself and think about how can I make this argument better or how can I change my argument because it's not working. Um, but I also think it's important that your partners are different from you. It, you know, a lot of people would say to us, um, wow, you guys have been together 10 years and three women at that, nudge, nudge, which, of course, drove us crazy. And I'm like, hey, if you look around Silicon Valley, it is littered with the bodies of ex-founders of both genders. Men have been no better at keeping together for long term than women uh, because it's hard. Partnership is hard. Um, But I think one of the things that's really key is that you have to have uh, complementary skills, complementary with an E. Um, If your skills are totally overlapping, now you're dealing with a lot of chest beating. Who's going to, you know, now you're, you're sort of, you're trying to win right? Because you guys basically bring the same thing to the table. So who's going to, it's a natural instinct to want to be the best. But if you all have skills from different areas and backgrounds and can strengthen and become like a superpower together, that is really important. I think the second reason partnerships break up is because you have to have equivalent workaholism, which is not to say you all have to be workaholic. You could all be not workaholic. But if one or two of you are working your ass off and someone else isn't pulling their weight, that can bring so much resentment, especially if you have equal ownership. So you need to understand work ethic. Um, and then I would say the third thing is that you need to be able to talk about the hard things, not just the easy things. So it, it, 
it's super fun when you have an idea and a vision and you're fleshing out how it's going to go and sky's the limit and that's, that, those are the fun conversations. But what about when you miss a number? Or what about when you chose a vendor and they turned out to suck? Or what about when you hired someone and it's not working out? <laughs> or what about any of those things that happen? Or what about when you make a mistake? And this is probably the most important one. It's so natural to want to fix it yourself. Um, fix it yourself and try to address it and just make sure it never becomes an issue. And it never goes down like that. You, you know, it's better to just, like, pull the Band-Aid off, show everybody your wound, and let's say, who's got this, who can do the stitches, who's got the antibiotic, let's, like, get in there together and fix it. Um, because I'm not going to sew up a bullet wound on my own. I'm just not that hardcore. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, have, I have to ask, how do you balance women's leadership in a patriarchal society? Oh, <laughs> what a good question. You know, there is, first of all, I think you have to play smart. Um, so when we went out to get funding, and, you know, less than 10% of VC-funded startups are founded by women. I think it's less than 8%. Um, when we went, went out to get funding, we just worked our network. We didn't make any cold um, we, we didn't do any cold outreach. We didn't have very many conversations, you know, in the initial round, right? It was not like we were we were going wide. We went really narrow and specific to people who knew one of us or to people who had been, you know, we knew someone who could recommend us personally. That stuff matters. So as much as, uh, and I consider myself an outgoing introvert, um, and, hmm. And, and I would say that, that Lisa, Jory, and I fall on the spectrum of introvert to extrovert. Um, and you, that's when networking is so important. It's not important just to build a Rolodex. It's important to build relationships that, um, that matter and that where people believe in you. Like my mentors from my tech days more than 10 years ago now, um, I'm still in touch. I still have lunch, you know, once a year maybe with my most significant mentor. He's now CEO of a company. I mean, he was he was a director level product management guy when we worked together. But um, and you know, I just uh, think that that's where having a network and being really reciprocal about it. I always say that for me, networking is about making connections that someday may be beneficial, um, but it may not be beneficial to you, and it may not be very soon. But um, sometimes, sometimes the benefit is what you can deliver to that person or what you can do to connect them with somebody else. And I, I do honestly believe that that's how you build reputation and um, social capital, I guess, that someday may come back to you in ways that are completely unexpected. Um, and it may not be directly from this person you helped or that person you helped. It's all about um, – and, and I, so I, sometimes I listen to myself and I say, wow, I sound really um, – like I'm just super, I don't know, analytical and hard, 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 a little bit hard <laughs> around the edges. But, but I totally believe in the spirit of abundance and not scarcity. I totally believe in helping anybody, you know, who asks for it um, if I can and making introductions. And if I believe in something, seeing if I can pitch in. And, I, and it's because I believe that, that that's just about a, a – a uh, higher level karmic payback, not necessarily a one-to-one, <laughs> one-to-one payback. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I really, I really, yeah. I really, 
really do, because, um, you know, Lisa, it's funny that you say that, you know, one of the things that, you know, Jay and I believe in and, and really, um, you know, it's, I guess it's a familial thing my mother believed in, karma, okay? You know, not like a, mm. a, a, a fanatical way, but she believed in professional and personal karma that what you put out there is what you get back. And your character is not based on what you do. It's based on who you are and who you choose to be. And, you know, um, I've known you now, I think, almost two years or three years since uh, Blogger was in New York um, before, Mm -hmm. a couple years ago. And I've always seen you as this amazing woman, you know, um, who always stopped to talk with people. You, Lisa, and Jory, you're not stuffy, you know, You've been hugely successful, but you actually take the time to talk with people and one-on-one, not just blow a person off. And, you know, that really brings me to this next one. You know, um, you said that you started on a shoestring budget, basically. You guys did your first first, uh, event with your credit cards, you know. Mm -hmm. Tell us us Mm -hmm. some of the things that you learned early, you know, as entrepreneurs, you know, that were may have been a failure then. But now you look back and, and you learn from it and you've turned it into a success today. One thing that really sticks with you. Well, I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday that when Lisa Jory and I, we bootstrapped for two years before going out to get funding, and that allowed us to walk in the door for funding conversations with real revenue and a real business plan and a lot more sweat equity in there that helped us retain more ownership. And, you know, it was good for us to bootstrap um, but it was stressful. And then once we got funding, we started hiring employees. We didn't want to replicate a mistake that we had all lived through in the dot-com boom, which was that we saw companies that they got either, you know, back then companies could go public uh, at a different level than they can now. They'd go public or they'd get funding, and, you know, immediately they'd start hiring all these VP-level people, and they'd start doing all these boondoggly things, and buying Aeron shares for the offices. And it didn't actually help get the work done day to day. So a lot of times you'd be dealing with the people on the line who had to really get stuff done, felt under-resourced and undercompensated and underappreciated, and yet you could see high times up up the chain, right? So we um, really didn't focus on that. For the longest time, when we could hire actual full-time employees, we hired – you know, people to manage different functions. And then when we could hire some more, we hired people to support those managers. But what we didn't do is bring on a bunch of VP level, senior level, C-level type people. Now, I think we did that too long. Uh, I think that kept Lisa and Jory and me in the weeds a little too long and not out and representing our company and making the higher level connections. I mean, we were doing that too, but I think we could have probably done a better job. So there was something good about what we did. And then later I could see where eh, we extended that philosophy a little too much. Um, similarly, when we first got a round of funding, we were super modest about our first round of funding. And we, you know, it's so funny because this is an example how you can have very different perspectives. Jory and I just spoke together on a panel, uh, on a, a, did a presentation for um, Watermark, which is a women's leadership organization out here in Silicon Valley. And um, we talked about that first round of funding, and Jory said she had wondered if perhaps we didn't ask for a huge first round because, because we were women and there's all that whole thing about women don't ask, and so maybe we were being a little too modest. And I'm like, oh, really? Is that why you think we didn't? I think we didn't because we were cocky. 
and we thought we know what we're doing and we've got a plan and everything's going to work because we're, we're on it. Like we are so, I, I felt like we were like, no, I don't want to give up more ownership. I don't need that much funding. We're going to, we're going to, you know, just get to give ourselves a little runway and boom, it's going to be all set. Um, so even amongst the, the two of us, we can have a really different perspective looking back, you know, nine years or whatever. Um, and so that's another thing I think is that, yes, it's great. It's great to be not over leverage. It's great to not give up too much ownership, especially if you've put in so much sweat equity. All that stuff is great. But I tell people now when they ask me about going out and raising funding and they say how much they're looking for, I'm like, okay, double that. I don't even care what the number is. They, they tell me they need half a million. I'm like, you need a million. If they tell me they need two million, I'm like, you need four million. Because you do not control the universe. And things happen at a macro level that will fuck you up. Excuse my language. Um, you know, the 2008, the, the 2008 recession, um, bang, that was not fun. And that was one year after we'd gotten that nice little round of funding. So, yeah, things happen, you know, and all your best laid plans of mice and men, as they say. So that would be the other thing I would say is like uh, – don't forget that you don't control the universe. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> so, Elisa, wow. <laughs> that, that's real. Hey, she's real. Hey, Elisa, what mistakes do you see <laughs> what mistakes do you see young entrepreneurs make today? Uh, well, I think um I think that all I, I'm not gonna cap on the young entrepreneur because I think that um, entrepreneurs in general, um, we make the same mistakes. We are too in love with an, an idea and not a user experience. So we get seduced by technology or we get seduced by a feature and don't understand it doesn't have that much benefit. So we have an unrealistic perspective on the value of what we're doing because we just think we've thought of something so cool and, you know, there's two questions I always ask is, you know, who needs that? Like, how, why are they going to love it? And, uh, oh, by the way, how are you going to make money? Because if you're thinking, if you're, you're going to be one of those companies like a Twitter or a Pinterest that's going to have a, a unicorn billion-dollar valuation before you've even figured out how to make money, you know, I hate to, to be the bearer of bad news, but the likelihood is you're not one of those companies. They are anomalous. That's why they're called unicorns. And so for the rest of us, we better figure out how we're going to make money and what we're doing that is um, really necessary and, or really so delightful that people don't know they need it. It's, there's a whole Steve Jobs thing about, right, he developed products that no one knew they needed, but they were so delightful that he changed, you know, entire sectors of technology um, but again, most of us are not going to be Steve Jobs. Like we're not. So better <laughs> to, to also, it, even if you think you've got that in you, that's great. But know the answer to the question: What pro, you know? Why does someone need this? And how are you going to make m- money giving it to them? That's so. That's so. I, I, love, I, yeah, I love. Yeah, it. I just want to say I love that. Who? I love that. Who needs it, and are they going to love it? That's so good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. I got a good. I have a real good question for you next, uh, uh, Miss Tage. Um, mm-hmm. You, you, we hear a lot about gender equality and gender equity. Being in a woman's space, 
you know, that you are with, you know, technology. Which one resonates with you more, gender equality or gender equity? Well, to hmm. me, um, equity speaks to fairness. I think it's semantic, first of all. I'm not sure. I'd have to, like, go look it up to make sure I understand the, the, book, the difference in the book definitions. I'm not sure. I think, to me, equity speaks to fairness, and that's, um, that's a no-brainer to me. Uh, I, you know, here's the thing. I think about um, a couple years ago we had Sheryl Sandberg speak at BlogHer right after Lean In came out, and I, I had seen her TED Talk and had had a viscerally negative response to it because I thought at my last tech job I couldn't have leaned in any farther, but if there was no one leaning back towards me, you just fall on your ass because you can't do that. It's not all. It's just not all on you, you know. So, oh, I love this. So I didn't, I didn't relate, and so I didn't think I was going to like the book. I, I wouldn't have probably chosen to read the book, but because she was speaking and we were partnering with them, I thought, okay, I'll go get the book. And so I read the book, and here's the thing: I thought she got so much flack for that book that. Um, I thought was was sort of unwarranted and probably gender based as well, because she sort of outlines in the book, hey, I know there are systemic issues. This isn't a book about that. I know there are societal perspectives. This isn't a book about that. I know there are class and income inequality and a- educational access issues. Totally get that. Here's some great resources. Here's some great data. What I'm going to talk about is understanding all of that. If you're operating within this system. What can you try to do? What are you dealing with if this is a system you're within, and what can you try to do? And um, so I thought she was super upfront about that, hey, this isn't dealing with a lot of situations that are out there for women. But if, if, why, could, why can she not write a book for women who are in that situation? I mean, no one asks Jack Welch if he has a nanny when he writes his book about business <laughs> leadership. <laughs> That just pissed me off. I mean, like, where's that? Where's that conversation? Elisa, this is why we love you. This is why we love you. Can you tell it like it is? This is why I love. This is why I love her. Um, uh, oh God, this is fun. I wish we, you know, Elisa, we have to have you back on because we have uh, the music industry. Um, a veteran is coming yeah. on after you. We have two more questions for you. I wish we could keep you on. This okay. is fun. So um, uh, it is fun. Love- Thank you. <laughs> I would love to know if you would come back within a few weeks so that we could just finish up some of the other questions we have because this is too good. Uh, absolutely, anytime. Okay. So I know that Jay has a question for you, and then I have one more after that. Okay. Yeah, Elisa, uh, uh, you're wonderful. I just want to know how can young girls start in their own business online? Well, I do think that. You know, when when people ask, what should I blog about or what should I focus on or what should I think about, um, I always think, well, what what are you passionate about that's sort of, what's and, and no matter how young you are, what's been a lifelong passion? So um, because the thing is, it's a grind. Uh, whether you're talking about building a blog um, and the frequency and dedication and consistency that's, that's required there or building a business, it's a grind. Some days you get up and you're like, man, my fingers are tired of that keyboard. Um, So you better be driven by something that you care about every single day. I care about, um, 
you know, justice and women's issues, but also greater civil rights issues. I care about that every single day. I care about, you know, animal rights every single day. I often think that the next thing I do will be focused on that. You know, I focus a lot on humans so far, and, you know, maybe it's time to shift to, to something else I care about. But I know I could do that because I care about it every single day. So even on those days when you're tired and you don't want to care about it, if you can't help caring about it, think about what you can deliver. I care about, you know, when I think also I think about food and health and uh, waste, you know, food waste and the healthcare system and food system and how it's stacked against lower income people. You know, that's something I care about every day and really am actively like feel angst about every day. So that tells me, that someday I could work in that, and no matter what kind of grind it was, I, I would be able to do it because um, I care about it every single day. So that's sort of the guidelines I give to people, you know. Wow. Well, you, you know, um, this is my last question, but before I go into the last question, would you let the audience know the, uh, you know, the numbers on Blogger, how big and how many women you have on Blogger? Well, right. Blog Her, as of last fall, is now part of the She Knows Media family. And together, um, we were the two, like, independent women's lifestyle networks in the top lifestyle networks on Comscore. So now that we've come together, we're number one or two every single month. And we're talking about competing against brands like, you know, Condé Nast and Meredith and Hearst and Yahoo and AOL and um, all the big, big either traditional web brands or traditional media brands. So then, and then there's Sheena's Media up there. And we reach 80 million uh, people on our websites and across our web network. And then we reach, you know, more than 150 million followers and fans and friends across our network's social profile. So we're reaching a lot of people. Um, we just announced yesterday that Blogger 16 um, will be in Los Angeles next August. So we're super Yay! excited about that. And that's that's the largest conference for uh, mostly women online content creators, but men are very much welcome and have been since day one. And then actually we have Thank Blog you. Her Thank Food. You. Um, oh, you're welcome. Uh, Blog Her Food is in Chicago this November, November 6th and 7th. Um, and that's the smaller event that's really focused on people uh, thinking about, writing about, taking pictures of, writing cookbooks you know, all around food, uh, but we also do have conversations about food issues and, and sort of the, the bigger picture of that. Uh, and that's a, a great event that's happening in November. So um, we've got a, a lot going on. Uh, there's, we now have via Sheena's Media a, a kids uh, program for kids called Hatch, which is all about media literacy and, and sort of giving passionate kids a voice and a way to um, uh, responsibly participate in this great sharing culture that we have. Uh, and we also have a program for entrepreneurs called The Pitch, which is all about mentoring and coaching women to take that big idea and, and really build a business and help them refine their pitch, their pitch to get funding, their pitch to get customers, whatever that pitch may be. Um, and all of those programs you can also find out about either on um, blogher.com for the conferences, but also uh, she knows.com for some of those other programs as well. Well, I thank you so much, Elisa, because we've run out of time, but we would love to have you back, um, and we will talk with you offline to have you back because we have okay. some amazing questions for you that we didn't get back. And it's, it was just such a pleasure to have you on. 
straightforward, real, yeah. and that's how we like it. Yes. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. It was nice to meet you, Jay, and uh, nice to meet you good too. talking to you, Gail. Yes, and as usual, we'll definitely be in communication. Thanks again. And I have one funny thing for you before you leave. So all this time, you know, the word page on your name, I thought it was your yes. page. I thought it was your page. Oh. And so it, it was, that's why, you know, we're sending out emails, and I'm like, oh, why would I send it to her page? So it was just really funny. Oh, and funny. Um, yeah, it, it is. And just thanks again, you know, for being on the show and sharing with us. You shared some really good tips, and um, we'll that we have more to talk with you about offline and online. Thank you again. Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, guys. All right, bye bye. Bye. Jay, just was she simply not amazing? Oh wow, she hit she hit it right on the nail. You know. Just real, really, that. real people, yeah. Mm-hmm. And pa- and Patrick yesterday thinks I say this to everybody, but it's just that the, the level of people that we have, you know, could be the little boy on the street to, you know, the amazing person. So, audience, we're really excited about this music industry veteran. We can't tell you who he or she is because of their position and the company they work for. But we are going to have a great talk with this person. So, we are bringing this person on now, and we're going to call him Obi-Wan Kenobi because he just knows everything. Uh, we would say Yoda, but he's cuter than Yoda. So, Jay, we're going to bring on Obi-Wan Kenobi. All right. Oh, let's see if we can get him on here. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Well, may, may the force be with you. Yeah. <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It, Wonderful, wonderful. Obi Wan Kenobi, you know uh, Jay here. How are you, uh, Jay? Yes. Hey, four. Jay. Hi, Obi Wan. <laughs> Hello there. Good to, <laughs> Good to see you. Good to touch base well, again. Yes, yes it, it is. is. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. As you heard, our earlier guest was from Blogger. Hundred and fifty-three million people on their, you know, their network blogging, and they just started ten years ago. How great is that, Obi Wan? That's amazing. It, it, amazing. it is amazing. It is amazing. So we're going to get right into music with you, okay? You know, um, sure. We, we since Jay and I love music, and we we decided to have no script for this one, okay? So you know, <laughs> we one of the things we know about you, you know, a lot of young people want to know about the music industry, okay? And everyone wants to get rich in the music industry, you know. And my question to you is. You know, here's this young man who says, I want to work for a certain company, right? And then he grows up and he works for that company. Like, how? what was that like for you? Uh, pretty surreal. Uh, but, I mean, I was just driven, I guess, from a very early age. And, uh, you know, and I was always surrounded by music since birth. So it's been a very important and meaningful part of my life. And I just knew from an early age, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in this industry doing what I do um, because of all the, I guess, joy and comfort music has brought me. It's nice to be around something that brings you joy 24-7. Well, I know Jay has some questions for you. Now, Jay, you and I are going to fight over this one, I know, but go ahead. Um, I, I, I want to know, like, um, what is your passion 
what is your passion for, you know, being in this industry? You know, everybody has different reasons, Obi, for being in this industry. What made you say, hey, I want to do this? You know, first and foremost, my love for the music. And, you know, second, I always wanted to help and make sure that things were done properly and accurately and that they were correct. And, you know, to help what I can do to help artists achieve their goals. You know, and, um, you know, it's it's so many artists that are out there, but there's just such a small percentage that really are able to make a living doing what they do and make those big bucks. And, you know, I always thought that if there's anything that I can do being in what position I have to help further an artist's career, to help them get to the next level, that they could do music as uh, their living and not have to have other jobs on the side. Um, you know, that's one thing that brings me extreme satisfaction. Mm. Mm. You know, um, one of the things, Obi-Wan, I have to tell you, calling you Obi-Wan is hilarious right now. <clears throat> but, uh, but Obi-Wan, one of the things that we, we want to ask you is, you know, I'm going to start with where we are now, Okay. You know, you talk about helping artists. You know, artists at one time when it first started out in the old, old days, let's go back to Ahmet Erdogan, okay? You know, mm-hmm. the old, old days that I wasn't even around, you weren't around, Jay wasn't around, but we read about it. You know, it started with you make a record, you have the group come in, they do live in the studio, you make the record, and you distribute and press the record, okay? Then we went to cassette tapes. Then we went to um, uh, vinyl again and the 8-track and cassette tapes. Then we moved on to the CD. Then we moved on to the MP3, and now we're on to streaming, okay? We're also dealing with the record labels not being in place like they used to, okay? And it's it's almost a free-for-all for artists out there now where, you know, artists are just, they can make their own, they can go on the computer, they can create their own demos and things like that. What what do artists what what is the advantage do you think that artists have now or don't have now well i think is the you know not necessarily the the streaming per se but just with the internet i mean you have a global reach at the tips of your fingers and depending on you know how you're able to get your music out there in that internet realm you know you can wind up becoming very successful and even winding up with a record deal. I mean, it's, there's no set norm now for the way an artist can be discovered or found, you know, it's not the old school way anymore. It's, you know, different. And now, you know, with the labels not making the revenue that they used to in the heydays, you know, they're more, you know, budget conscious of, you know, delving into these, you know, lucrative deals with artists who don't have track records. And, you know, by putting and posting your stuff up, you know, on one of the social media aspects, whether it be, you know, Vine or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, you know, you're able to get it out there and, you know, anyone can have access to hearing your music. So it's a whole different field and, in a sense, it's more of a maybe a level playing field. I mean, you've had artists in the past five years who have gone from obscurity 
to being able to afford to even like hire one of the major labels to help them work their music to radio. Um, Interesting. Whereas in the old days, that was, you know, just unheard of. If you didn't get signed to that major label, it you probably did not have much of hope of getting your song onto radio. Hmm. Wow. Well, Almighty, Mighty, Obi Kenobi, I have one more question I want to ask, and maybe a couple of more. I want to know, how is streaming changing the charts? Well, I mean, streaming is changing the charts, uh, you know, that we're now, you have what is called the consumption-based chart, which is the Billboard 200, which is the Bible of our industry, and they use many different metrics to um, aggregate that data. That includes not only physical and digital full albums sold, but also it's looking how it's being consumed, who's purchasing or listening online to a certain song from that album, and or who's watching that video, and all that is combined together to give you a broader outlook on the way music is being consumed because in the day and age today, you know, music may not be selling as well as it did, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, but it's being consumed in more ways than it's ever been, ever. So, I mean, that's, to me, a very fascinating thing. Wow. Interesting. 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 What what genre of music to you is is not coming up where it could be? What genre of music? I, you know, it there's so many, you know, from seeing a lot of sales data and seeing how anemic certain charts are. I mean, when you look at certain genres, let's say like classical music or jazz or even like new age music, you know, those niche genres, the sales are just very poor. Um, And, you know, I'm always racking my brain and looking at these things. You know, I know this music is being consumed, you know, uh, and I just don't know, you know, in a sense where these musicians are, you know, being consumed by their fan base. Usually I know with classical, it's a very much an older demographic who may still, you know, buy a physical product. I mean, and you'll look at, you know, with an older generation, when you have an album, let's say by like a Barbra Streisand come out, you'll see that the sales for that are, you know, so high compared to the digital you know, a physical product compared to the digital or, you know, streaming that content. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that in the future um, that the industry will be able to look at how they look at the Billboard 200 and look at other genres of music that same way on a consumption basis to see exactly how and what's being consumed. Because right now we're only getting the information for the Billboard 200. Well, you know, I, I just have this real quick question to uh, Jay. I'm sorry, I wanted to jump in here. Why is it the U.S.? This is totally different, Jay and and, and Obi Wan. Why is it that the U.S. does not like EDM music, electronic dance music? Why is that? 
<laughs> See, I can't say that the U.S. doesn't like it. Um, it's something that has basically come more in the forefront in the past couple of years um, and has been more accepted here and is selling a lot more. Um, okay. But the reason it always seems to be in the headline is more al- along the line of the culture that surrounds EDM music where, you know, people supposedly do a lot of drugs. And as a result, there have been, um, you know, some deaths at some of these festivals that they have tried to launch or continue to do here and they, as they're becoming larger. And that causes a lot of concern, not only with, you know, the industry as a whole, but also wherever the festivals are being held, it's, you know, the town and government don't like to see that people are dying when Mm. they're going to take part and attend a festival. And I think that's where the negative uh, stigma is coming from. It's not the music. It's more of the lifestyle of what people do when they are at these festivals. And, you know, mind you, it's not everybody who does do this who attends these festivals, you know, just as in any other form of, you know, music, there's always been the parties and the wrecking of motel rooms and drug use. It just seems to be that, you know, especially if you go to a dead concert, everyone's always smoking weed, you know, but no one gets (laughs) injured or dies from that. And at these EDM festivals, there seems to be a higher toll of injury and death. Wow. Um, Obi, I would like to also know, as we move to a more mobile ecosystem, is there a, more of a natural transition towards services that provide subscription as, access rather than a la carte ownership of our, you know, used to, I used to like a bird in the hand is better than two in bush. Is there a movement towards that, and why do you think so? Yeah, I mean, look at what Apple, was. they launched, you know, and you also have, you know, Spotify and some of the other aggregators. They all have mobile apps that you can download to your phone, and if you subscribe to their plan, that you get unlimited access to listen and stream whatever musical content they have up on their sites. And, you know, there's always more and more, you know, the labels, you know, feel that, you know, digital and, uh, you know, consumption uh, of, you know, music via streaming services are are the future and are going to make up for the loss in physical sales or digital sales that are going on. Uh, We have not yet seen that in the U.S., but in other countries, and some of them do very well in the digital um, and the streaming services basically have overtaken physical. It's, it's interesting so, uh, you say this. It's interesting to say this. Um, you know, my my question to you on that is the the, the mobile, uh, you know, the, the mobile, the different mobile frameworks coming into play. All right, and the ecosystem changing to one of streaming. All right, what mm-hmm. do you what do you think of that ecosystem with the fact of the streaming? 
and the royalties in which it pays out? And do you think that people will also still buy the MP3s as well, where artists can actually still get physical royalties as well? Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, my major problem with, with streaming services is I don't feel that the artists are compensated enough for their art. Because when you look at, you know, things in a nutshell, this is how an artist makes their living. They write songs or perform these songs, and they deserve to be paid for that. And I think a lot of people um, don't feel that way. I mean, uh, you know, a new generation of kids who've grown up with the Internet automatically feel that they should be entitled to the music, that, you know, it shouldn't be paid for, but then how are these artists going to survive? And, you know, it's shown that now touring and also licensing type of deals are becoming the major source of income for artists, and it isn't the recorded purchasing of music anymore. Um, And I just think that, you know, this industry needs to come to some type of agreement where these companies are able to operate and make a profit, but also compensate the artists fairly. And, you know, at this point in time, that's not done. But, you know, there's also a difference with the U.S. and other countries. You know, when you get play on radio, press radio, anywhere else in the world, artists get paid for that. In the U.S., they don't. And as a result, overseas, for any artist that's U.S.-based, you know, or born from the U.S., they don't, aren't able to reap the benefits of those monies from other countries. Um, they're put, I think, into an escrow. I'm not 100% positive. And if the U.S., and I'm hoping eventually the U.S. will come aboard with that, those monies will be paid out to those artists. Wow. I wanted to ask OB about metadata. Uh, You know, a lot of the streaming (laughs) services and downloads, a lot of the musicians and artists, they don't get mentioned. And the the consumer doesn't really know. Like, you know, in the the old days, we knew who did this. We knew who wrote the song. We knew who played the violin. What what is your thoughts on this uh, being added to the data stream? Well, I know that, you know, that's one of the bane of my existences at the moment, you know, with a lot of this metadata you know, data and, you know, it, you know, the number one, you know, avenue where this is linked is usually through, I believe it's Rovi and all music. And it's just important mm-hmm. for all artists to know that they need to get to Rovi and all music, their bios, their photos, all the liner notes, um, the track listings, you know, and whatever artwork, Rovi, you know, needs in order for when it's, you know, you know, given to other companies out there, like I think Amazon and even I think like BillboardThere.com, that information gets fed to them and goes up on their site. And if they don't have an artist page indicating all of the information, it doesn't and is not able to get everywhere else that it needs to. And, you know, it's very important, and it's the slightest misspelling or punctuation or whatever it can be can throw all this off, and 
not have that information show. Um, but mm. I remember, you know, as a kid, you know, just looking at liner notes of, you know, of albums and wanting to know who produced something, who wrote something, you know, and I just think that today a generation doesn't look at that information you know, because in the music industry, there you know it it isn't just the artist gets out there and poof, they're, they're huge. They have a whole team behind them, not only at times label and management, but also engineers and you know mixers and songwriters and producers. And you can make a good living, you know, either being a writer or a producer, you know, and being behind the scenes and not in front of the camera in the limelight. Um. You know, and I don't think that people realize there are so many other aspects in this industry um, other than being that recording artist. Hmm. Well, I don't know if you have heard, okay, but YouTube plans to, it's just been announced a couple of hours ago, that YouTube is planning to get into the area of streaming music, Okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, every, everyone's getting into streaming music, Obi, okay? I'm hearing that ad revenues from music streaming is going to exceed $1 billion, all right? Mm-hmm. My question to you is, are, you know, we're talking about metadata here. We're talking about information of liner notes. You know, do you think that it's going to get to a point that any of this, you know, the songwriters, the producers, the um the people who played on the music, the people who sung the music, where do you think they're getting paid in this over, like, it's exceeding a billion in royalties? Do you think that they will get paid in this? I I would hope so. And, again, it also depends on the type of contract or, you know, deal that they made with the artist. Sometimes it can be a work for hire that you hear you get paid $10,000 and you're going to do this for me. And if the song would have generated that income that exceeds what they were paid. It doesn't matter. It was for hire. And then there are others that they take points on the song. And for whatever income is generated, they will get a percentage. You know, And that's all based on whatever contractual agreements they come to with the artist. Um, you know, I'm hoping that with all the streaming stuff that, you know, it's getting distributed to the correct people. And I know just, you know, that those, you know, streaming services are doing a great job of getting that information into the right hands. Um, You know, it just means that, you know, with a lot of this metadata that's out there, you have to make sure that whatever is on the net that either could feature your song and your vocal that, that is tagged with that data, you know, I know that there are, I believe they're called ISRC numbers, and you have to make sure that that ISRC code number is attached to any video, and that includes homemade videos from someone's living room playing your recording, because if it's tagged, you will get revenue generated from whoever watches that, you know, and streams that video. If that metadata isn't there, it, you can't collect the royalties on it. So it's very crucial 
you know, in order for you to make sure you're getting all of the monies that you have earned to making sure that everything is tagged and correctly. Got it. You know, Jay, I just want to jump in here for what I know you got some questions. I just got to jump in for this one. My quick question to you is how take us through what an artist needs to do today to from they're sitting down, getting ready to get on the computer and make their music, whether they're singing, they've got the or they got the producer there and they're singing and they're doing it themselves, you know, like do DIY, do it yourself way all the way into getting it into the right hands. Can you give us the abbreviated view of how you see that? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on all how your video is tagged. And there are a lot of artists who have, in this day and age, and you want to go back far enough, you know, let's go to Bieber, you know, um, covering the hottest songs of the moment. When you cover something that's huge, people are constantly looking for that song. If they come across yours and manage to click on it and they like what, your, you know, what they hear, that can elevate your status. And, you know, that's how things can go viral and artists can get signed. Um, I mean, look at, you know, what Bauer did um, with the Harlem Shake. Um, it was the first song that went number one on uh, the industry singles chart uh, that Billboard does called the Hot 100. And it reached that due to the Vine, what they call memes, using that song in it. And, I mean, the song went viral and, you know, managed to go to number one. I mean, so there are so many things that are out there and it's a matter of how you tag it and what you're putting out there. And it seems to work best from what I've been able to observe that if you put a cover out there of a hugely popular song and if your cover is great you know, whether it be a different take on it or sometimes the cover is even better than the original, you know, um, you can get that traffic and you can get that viral, you know, you know, get it out and it, you know, it goes viral and then, you know, boom, you have labels then chasing after you for deals. So, um, you know, it works. I mean, look at all the, you know, the social media superstars that have come up, you know, not only from, you know, music, but also comedy times with these little videos they put up. I mean, and you can look at, um, there's the, this rap duo, Jack and Jack. I mean, look what they've done and they're doing it all on their own, do it yourself. And they've charted some singles, not only on different charts, but they, you know, have a huge following and able to tour, you know, it's, uh, definitely a different landscape out there now. Wow. Okay. Um, Obi, um, piracy remains a massive problem for, you know, this music industry. Um, it's like uh, alone, 4 billion music downloads via BitTorrent alone. Um, 20% of fixed Internet users worldwide regularly access services offering copyright infringements. Should, um, if advertisers stop advertising on uh, these pirate sites? And is this a problem for the government, or should the ISPs take more responsibility to prevent illegal distribution of music online? I mean, that's a slippery slope. Um, Personally, I feel that those ISRCs should be taking a harder stance 
and definitely if the advertisers were not uh advertising on those you know illegal sites that would definitely i think curb it um but you always have this you know debate going back and forth in the industry do these pirating sites is that robbing you know the artists of money and is it hurting or in a sense is it helping because sometimes <laughs> you know people feel that right. if they find something and and they wind up liking it and you know when you become a fan of an artist usually you support that artist you go buy a concert ticket you go buy a t-shirt you may even go buy the the you know album either digitally or physically you know and i know that at least from you know what i'm seeing now you know a lot of artists as i mentioned before are definitely making a lot of their money from touring basically they're interacting with their fans which is a crucial part now of this industry where is you know in the past when you had that high high you know star out there you couldn't touch them it was very hard to like be in their presence per se you could see them from the stage but you didn't feel like you were necessarily invested in their life and with social media that sort of has changed everything and if artists aren't meeting their fans and interacting with them on a daily basis um, it can hinder your career. I mean, the, you know, the queen of doing all of this is, you know, look at what Taylor Swift has done. I mean, she has a multi-million dollar empire now, and she's one of the most savvy uh, business-minded women that are out there today. Um, and she has done an amazing job, not only of communicating with her fans and, you know, throughout the journey she's been on, but keeping that interaction going, showing her appreciation that, you know, to the extent that her fans are going out and buying her product. I mean, and with the last album that she released, 1989, she even put 13, um, she put a set of what they called cards, and there were 13 cards to the pack, but she did five different packs. So the fans were going out and buying five copies of the album to get each set of cards. So when you have, you know, something so innovative around that, you know, and you see the fans rallying, and her fans are young. They've grown up with her since, you know, know, and you can see it can be done. And you can still sell over a million units of your album in a week when you do it right. They're okay, not going to be as frequent, <laughs> you know. Look at how how you know Taylor has done it. The constant interaction, you know, and the radio play that she gets, and you know the constant touring, you know, and she's you know meeting and greeting her fans. Even you know nowadays, even though she's so huge, she does meet and greets all the time. She even had a bunch of her fans come over to her apartment and listen to the album before it was released, it's those personal interactions that basically make it even more special that you feel that connection. And that's what you have to do. Know your fan base and connect with them. But now, even with that, you know, we had an artist on recently who talked about, you know, having to do all this social media, even for a well-known artist. It becomes very difficult to do all this social media, um, Alex, 
and and have all of this going at one time. And I have two totally crazy questions for you, two totally different ones. Um, that is, you know, Obi, we, one of the things, Obi, we want to know is, what do you think about the new, the new Oculus with virtual reality coming into the music industry and how it can be used? I mean, it, it's interesting, and um, it can be lucrative, as we've seen. And I guess maybe it can also be seen as a little creepy, but, I mean, it all depends on how it's used. I know when they did the Tupac hologram, you know, and they're looking to do stuff with other artists who are deceased, such as, you know, Michael Jackson they did, and they're looking to do one, I think, now with Selena. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, it's possible that maybe that can create, you know, something that, you know, people who did not have the ability to see when they were alive, the brilliance that was there, they can maybe capture and get an idea of some of that brilliance. Um, uh, well, we have two more questions for you. And, Jay, I know you have one, so I don't want to, you know, hog the spotlight here. Yeah, so I'm... I'm 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 looking at um, the world global picture of how music has transcended uh, with the event of a lot of the other uh, uh, aggregators uh, such as KKBox and some of the things in Asia and how they have 200 million subscribers. When will we all become one? Where's your prediction where we all can get together, all this, as one one mass of music? Um, universe. When, when will that happen, you think? You took my question, Jay, but I'll let you go. go ahead. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, very nice to imagine and hope, and maybe we'll reach there one day, but I think when you have basically people at the top of corporations who are just looking at the bottom line of money and aren't, I guess, music people, per se, it makes it a lot more difficult to have something that's consistent worldwide because each territory is also different. And in certain territories that have launched services prior to them in other territories, you know, like Spotify is huge where, you know, <clears throat> Daniel is from. Um, and in other countries, it's been extremely successful. In the U.S., he's still, you know, plugging away and it's you know holding its own but there are so many other companies that are doing what he did before he launched here that they had a jump and you know I guess it's a matter of preference for people and I think as as long as some people are going to have different preferences you know that's just human behavior some are going to like this service or like that service and to have one complete service also you know i don't know if that's realistic shall we say got it okay well well here's here's my last question you know we talked about virtual reality and one of the things about virtual reality is that it, it, you know, it's been shown in case studies that once, uh, you know, the impressions from the, the video and the images, it has you like you're actually there, like the people are looking at, like looking at it with you. It takes about approximately anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes to come out of it. 
but it has a lasting impression for, they said, not even days or months, but years. What would it look like? This is just an idea that I'm coming up with right now in the moment. What would it look like if we had our, the fans of all their, their favorite music experience video through Oculus as though they were in a video? Yeah, I, I don't know enough yes. about the technology myself. It's so no, new. What, what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on that if that was made available? Do you think that that would increase I mean, sales? I don't, you know, some people are always going to say yes, some people are going to say no. I just think that anything at this time that, you know, opens you up and exposes you to the music has the ability to increase sales. But, you know, uh, you know, as the older generation, and I hate to look at it this way, dies off, the, you have a generation growing up who never understood or never got the, uh, you know, the thing of to own music and to purchase music. You know, it's been available to them for free, whether it be going to YouTube and watching a video on, you know, of their of a song that they like, or going to some of these illegal sites. You know, and I think that virtual type of reality, you know, it's kind of seems like it's fun. Um, And, you know, I'm sure that as the development of this technology grows, you know, it's going to become bigger. Um, We'll see if it can help increase revenue, but I just think as time continues, what artists need to do is, you know, do different innovative things, you know, to increase their sales. I know sometimes at at shows now, artists are doing those meet and greets, which are, at this point in time, it seems like most have to do it. You can't get away with not doing it. (laughs) And they are, you know, and they are specifically pressing up physical, tangible products to be sold at the show, and then they're autographing them at the show. And we get a lot of sales from the you know products sold at these shows, and it's sort of like a souvenir and a memento of you know their night, you know the fans' night, and especially if they got to meet the artist. So you know they make it special, and that's how you know I think artists are going to be able to increase their revenue. You know, and if you look at, you know, some of the different um, funding sites where you can join um, and try and raise funds for your album so that you can make it, you know, uh, a lot of artists are giving away, you know, dinner or go to a movie or come with me to the park, you know, or great adventure or, you know, uh, you get a handwritten lyric sheet, you get swag, you know, you get something that unless you, you know, took part in that fundraising campaign, you aren't able to get that, you know. And a lot of artists are doing that now. I mean, even I think Bieber put up his album for pre-sale on his website, and he's making it that if you buy this bundle, he'll text you a message, or you'll get a Skype call from him, or you'll get this, or, you know, and... That's to me more of where 
things are going, and a lot of artists are offering these VIP upgrades that you pay an additional $20, $30 or whatnot, and you get to come to Soundcheck, you get to meet the band, you get to take a photo, you know, and it's all about that interaction and that connection. Because you know, if the fan doesn't feel connected to you. Wow, that's, that's really powerful. You know, Jay and I always talk about this, Obi-Wan, and, and that is that fans, you know, it's to the point now because of social media, because of streaming, okay, no longer can make money on downloads, and even downloads weren't a lot of money, that artists are forced to tour rather than they could be home with their families or anything like that. They're forced to tour. Um, they're forced to have bigger, uh, you know, uh, bigger teams now because they have to have the social media team. They have to have the manager and all of this. And even if they were getting paid well by the streaming services, we want you to just give, um, you know, like the beginning of what an artist needs to do to get in this industry from creating their music, like in a, a real abbreviated view as our, you know, a last moment of how an artist should, you know, just off the street, start with their music, getting it online or whatever, and then getting it out the door. Can you just give our artists some advice for like, you know, one minute of what they need to do? Sure. Um, at least from my perspective, you know, first and foremost, you need to build a fan base, you know, and artists usually start with their fan base and it's from where they're home. You need to get out there. You need to play shows. You need to interact with your fan bases, you know, that's out there. Um, you need to get your stuff up on the social media platforms. You need to make sure you have every, you know, a Snapchat, a Vine, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, so that people can find you. You know, so you need a YouTube page, you know, you need a this page, you need a that page, and even, you know, where some sites may not be as um, dominant or not traveled to as often, as long as that site is up, you should at least have some type of presence there in case someone pops on there, they can come across you, and it can lead to all your other sites, you know, um, and it's basically, you know, put the stuff up on YouTube and have that dialogue and interaction with your fan base. Um, and, you know, I also still think, you know, that if there's a song out there that you love or that means, you know, that hits you and it's a current song, you know, you have more of a chance if you do that cover of getting found and someone clicking on it, which can lead to them then also looking at whatever your own music is. Um you know, it's a matter of, you know, trying to, you know, that's the way I guess you pound the pavement this day and age, you know, through that social media aspect and, you know, also, you know, touring. Got it. Well, we really, really thank you, Jay and I. Thank you for being on, and we hope that you'll come on again, Obi-Wan, um, in the future. Of course. And, and, just, and just thank you, and, you know. Um, thank you for it, having it, it, me. Oh, no problem. And uh, thank you to Elisa Camelhart Page, and you know for for all of that. And um, we'll see you next time, Obi Wan. Thank you. And Take may care. the force be, well. be with you, Obi. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, we've had um, we've had the force with us, and then we had the other force with us because I have to say that Elisa is a force. <laughs> So yeah, I think, I think, yeah. 
We definitely had it. It's just great. It's great when we get experts on our, you know, we get Ob and 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 Elisa. We get experts on our on our show because it really enlightens our audience. It's really educational, even for me. You know, I learned a lot from Ob. You know, and um, and and I'll definitely, I can't wait till Elisa comes back and uh, shares more. Well, I, I'm putting this out there, and I hope I don't get her in trouble. But I'm going to try to have her come back next week, and maybe have Obi come back next week because there's just so much information. And and then we having Patrick come back next week. I think it would be an amazing show to have you know each one on for about 20 minutes each because um, you know sometimes these shows are just so uh, short. And I think the most important thing is our audience is getting to learn about culture, um, international diplomacy. Uh, you know metadata, data across the board, not just the music industry, but metadata and data is becoming increasingly important to all aspects of industry across the board, whether it's sustainable development, uh, Jay, or whether it is, you know, uh, the market and how we do things. You know, before it was, Jay, your age and, um, you know, what age you were, whether you're male and female, now it's your lifestyle. You know what I mean? People, you know, the metadata tells us, you know, what you were speaking about earlier, but metadata not just in reference to music. Metadata now tells companies like IBM. IBM is no longer in the business of machinery, really. I mean, they do something. They do some things, but their data is they can tell you when Jay and I get off of this radio where we're going to be, Jay. Am I right? Where we're going to go now. Oh, yes. They know. What we're going to do. <laughs> right. You know. What are you? So, and it, right. You know, and you know, Jay, my, la- my, my last question to you, too. You know, I've had the opportunity to be on Oculus several times. Now I want an Oculus, actually. It's addictive. And, it, and, I, and you know that I don't like addictive technology. And you find yourself left with the images in your brain of everything that you've seen for months. I still have the images from last year when Oculus first was brought to the market that Randy Zuckerberg actually bought um, Oculus for $2 billion, okay? When the owner himself said at one of the conferences we attended that it was only worth $10 million a company. So I just had the opportunity to see an Ebola video that scared me so much because I thought I was actually there in the hospital with the Ebola victims. I, like, actually forgot where I was for a minute. So Oculus is much much more powerful than any gaming goggles that you think it is. And Randy Zuckerberg was at the World Forum at the beginning of this year using it for mining. So it's really, I was like, well, why would he use it for mining? What can he get out of that? But it's 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 very powerful. And I think with the music industry, they can use Oculus to really get into the videos if they can't. But that also can take people away from the everyday one-on-one with the artist. Wow, so that's um, that's important. That that, te- that technology is amazing. I hear that it's coming to Disneyland and Disney World, where you can virtually be anywhere. These new rides, people are going to be astounded with this new technology. It's very scary. It's extremely scary because you're not actually riding, but your body feels like it. When I was actually watching um, three videos, one on Ebola and another one where it was just this really cool movie that they showed us, and we were there, and it's like I actually walked into a pole. I mean, that sounds funny, but I was walking because I thought I was there, and I wanted to be there even more. 
And it takes you about 30 to 40 minutes to come out of it because the images are so surreal. And then the people are looking at you because whoever was filming the video, they were looking at. You see what I'm saying? So, therefore, <laughs> they're looking at you in the video, and you think you're a part of the whole thing, but there's nothing but a virtual reality. And there's a concern about that because people who have mental issues or people who want to escape life, they will escape into that. It can also, you know, break up marriages because that's an, also an area, you know, where pornographic uh, uh, videos can be seen as well. You know what I mean? And, and since right. everybody is visual, all human beings are visual, could you imagine? You think you're, see, you know, you're, you're, you think you're in the world itself. It's really scary. You know, we it's are another in, dimension. Yeah, yeah, we are. We are. Jay, you said it. We are absolutely in another wow. dimension. You know, they say. You know, that's another show. But they say there are other dimensions anyway, which you and I've read up about. But the, you know, this is really um, Oculus is. They're trying to make other virtual reality glasses, but it's, it's not the same. Oculus is really the top. I've seen a bunch of the other ones, and um, our iPhones, our Samsungs, our Androids, our. Um, uh, attached right to the goggles, so it's really, you don't even need a Bluetooth. It's scary. It's really scary. Wow. Well, as, as usual, thank you for being on our show today, and we will see everyone next week for what appears to be a jam-packed week, don't you think, Jay? Oh, yes, it definitely is. It's going to be. <laughs> yeah, and we ask that you visit um we ask that you visit our website, which is listengive.org, and um, loungerenownrecords.com. We are updating our sites. We have a lot of, a lot of surprises uh, coming to you this year. We've told you that in the past, but really this year we have a lot, as you've seen, our guests and so forth. So thank you so much, everyone, and we hope you have an amazing holiday week. We're out, Jay, and let's listen to I Want Your Number by Pat and Leather. Lounger now record y'all. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.